0: So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution, code badges. That's right, you heard me right. Basically the idea is, is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at CodeBadge.org. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story, or My Angular story. We actually have Joe Eames, who's on both JavaScript Jabber and Adventures in Angular. So we're going to make this interview do double duty. And if you're not interested in the Angular bits of things, you can just tune out for part of it, I guess. Okay. All right, so uh, let's dig in. The first question is, how did you get into programming? Or how did you get started?
1: Well, um... It kind of depends on your definition. So when I was like 16, I ended up, they, I was in high school and there was a class that I was taking that I actually had to go to the university, University of Utah. So I drove every day. I had only had like half day at the high school and then I drove up to the university to take a class. And since I was up there, I, I was, I, I of course needed a job, right? Kids got to have a job to have money for dates and stuff. So I worked at the movie theater and the, my boss was a major jerk and we got in an argument over me being late and lying about it. So he, he uh, put me on suspension. I was like, I'm gonna go find a new job. Found a job at the University of Utah and at the mailing bureau. But what we were doing was data entry, and they had this D database. So, my very first like kind of programming job was doing a little bit of D base database maintenance. All right. So, that's kind of my first programming job. But then, uh, uh, when I turned 19 and graduated from high school, I went and served two years for an LDS mission. When I came back from that, Where'd I go. Uh, I was I started off in Russia. I was there for like five weeks, but then I went to Portland because uh, we walked a lot and I had bad really bad knees uh-huh. and then in moving Portland. So I spent two years in Portland, which was awesome other than, the rain. <laughs> other than the rain. I would love Portland if it wasn't so rainy all the time. Yep anyway. So after that, I came back home and I needed a job and uh, I found this job at this place that would kind of like, it was a very technical, they were growing, right? they were a computer company and they had, they did data entry as well and they were growing like crazy. And so they hired me as sort of a semi-technical guy. I was doing some wiring and other things. And one manager came to my manager and said, Hey, I need a programmer. For this project for just a short while, can I borrow one of yours? And he says, I can't spare any mine, but I got this guy that I'm not using a ton. And I know that he's taking some programming classes. So he handed me Fox books. And I, since I've been doing DBASE, <laughs> you know, Fox Pro isn't too far off. So he handed me Fox books and says, if you could do this by the, you know, on Mondays, like Friday. He says, if you could do this on Monday, then I'll hire you right it's a program for me so i was i like spent a weekend just reading fox pro you know this is back in the days nowadays you don't get manuals with a language right right you you go online and you look for training courses and blog posts and you go through like uh, online courses or school courses but back then languages were all done by some company and they had manuals right and there that was it that was for documentation you that was it there was no internet well there was no internet at the time i guess it had barely, barely opened up. This was like 97 it had barely opened up. So you don't go to the internet to find out how to program. You've read the manual. So I read, I so spent a whole weekend reading Fox pro manuals wow. and that, and then I came back and it was so funny. That first job, like I was so terrible. I didn't know anything. I remember I had to do this very, very basic data copy and rather than, Actually joining two tables using a SQL join to figure out, you know, the find the correlating data and copy it from one place to another. I actually opened up two uh, browse windows where I was looking at the two tables of data I needed to deal with. And I just lined them up side by side and put the scroll. I sorted them the same way and put the <laughs> scroll bars. So they lined up and I was like manually copying data, basically doing data entry because it needed to be done and I needed to do it quick. And I didn't know how to do it any other way. <laughs> That's amazing. I remember, that was so funny. And then. We had a little department of two guys, and next door was a department of two guys. One of those guys was super friendly guy, very nice. So I was constantly over there asking him questions like, all right, how do I do this? How do I do that? Man, I remember he had this coworker one day that was like, why don't you go and do your own job and stop making our guys do your job? <laughs> Which I didn't, I didn't take too very kindly. I I don't know if that had much by itself, much of an uh, effect on the fact that I love to do education, but I always, it always rubbed me the wrong way that a guy would treat somebody else that way, you know? Uh So I only worked there for like three months and then found another job and more Fox Pro and eventually the internet got big and then internet programming was kind of the thing. So then I kind of switched over to more internet based languages and left Fox Pro behind.
0: Wasn't FoxPro a Microsoft technology? Or? Yes.
1: Yes, it was. So there's like this strange history with these d languages. They call them X-based languages. FoxPro, Clipper, and d all kind of shared things. Microsoft sort of bought some patents from a, another company and then developed FoxPro kind of on their own. And some of the technologies, of the, it was a database. It was, it was a lot like what Access is today, right? It's the database and a language all integrated together. Right. And you could do visual forms and things like that, like you can in Access. So it was it was fun. It was interesting programming, but you we, we were very intimate with the data. I kind of liked it. Nowadays, you got to transmit large quantities of JSON over the wire, and they look entirely different. And you know, back back then, it was. A little bit different way to do things, but yeah, I was owned by Microsoft. So I was, I, I felt like a very much like a Microsoft guy. So when I started doing .NET, it was very natural for me to. Well, it was Visual Basic first, and uh, then it was .NET right after Visual Basic. Had a short time of Visual Basic when Calm was all the rage. For anybody out there that's old enough to remember Calm. Calm was a big rage at the time.
0: So, so how do you go then from Fox Pro and? Microsoft technologies to JavaScript. How did you get into JavaScript?
1: That was a very conscious effort on my part. So I was doing .NET and I did it through I don't know like 07 or something maybe 08 and jQuery came out in 06 and JavaScript you know had I had bought maybe one or two books and this you know back then it was still when you wanted to learn more stuff you went to the bookstore and you bought books. Right. I don't, nowadays, if, if anybody who's been programming for less than, I don't know, like five years, you'd hear the, the idea of buying a book to learn programming. You think, what? What? That's a dinosaur tactic. Right.
0: Oh, I still have my JavaScript manual. Like, yeah. That's the comprehensive one with the rhino on the front.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. yep, you know, Good stuff. So I bought a couple of JavaScript books to do just, you know, back back in the early part of the century, you'd only use JavaScript to do like validation, right? Uh And there was this awesome new emergent technology that looked so cool. Everybody was raving about called DHTML. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, we'd heard about it. And some people in my office were like doing it, but I was all confused, like, I don't get what this is. And I mean, I kind of got it, but I didn't ever really do much with it. And uh, I just sort of Things were going along. I've been programming in .NET now for quite a few years, long enough that for some reason, I guess maybe it was getting that seven-year itch. And I just said, you know what? I want to do something different. And we were doing web technology stuff. We were b- building websites, which is really fun. But it's like thinking to myself, I want to get heavier into in JavaScript. So this is right around 09, maybe. And I just made this conscious decision. I said, you know what? I'm going to leave behind everything that I'm doing And I'm going to go heavy into JavaScript. I want to learn everything there is to know about JavaScript. Knockout had come out at the time. Um, I think Backbone was out at that time and kind of popular. jQuery certainly was. And so I just I I looked for a new job and found a job where I was uh, basically doing just front end stuff. It turned out to be kind of a bust because it was CSS was mostly what they wanted me to do. And it wasn't even like hard CSS. It was like this really weird kind of CSS maintenance (laughs) things. So I didn't really learn a lot of CSS. I'm I'm definitely not a CSS expert, but it was a very conscious choice. So I I eventually found a job where it was just a front-end JavaScript developer. And I learned enough JavaScript by that point that I felt very comfortable with it and was – um, you know capable but it last the last couple of years I'd spent more and more efforts to learn more and more JavaScript and play around with backbone and uh, knockout and learn those technologies and uh, so I just decided I want to be a JavaScript developer and I don't want to if I do any backend I want it to be a small amount of time and I was lucky to find a job that was all front-end JavaScript
0: it's funny okay. though I don't I don't know if you're new to programming I don't know if you understand but uh, that was a weird thing about yeah I mean, even five or six years ago, it was a weird <coughs> thing to be a front end developer because honestly, JavaScript was kind of the arcane part of building websites. And you knew your back end technology, and then you would bolt in whatever jQuery pieces you needed. And some yeah. people had like uh, jQuery plugins and jQuery UI and things like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it seems like a little bit of a risky move.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew, I just felt like, I, I'd seen a couple of things. One, I was I was really into like engineering practices, so pair programming and testing and unit testing and test driven development. I was way into that sort of stuff. In fact, the very first time that I was on JavaScript Jabber around episode twenty was to talk about testing in JavaScript, and I just like I would immersed myself into because one of the things I saw pretty quickly being heavily into that sort of realm and wanting to get more and more into JavaScript was like nobody was doing testing in JavaScript. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's doing it, and I. I think I had this, like, epiphany, and that was JavaScript is this unknown frontier where nothing's been done. Mm-hmm. But by that time, Gmail was out, <clears throat> and people were seeing the power of really good JavaScript interfaces. And I said to myself, you know, right now it's a lot cheaper to do development full stack, right? Make your Do your server-side rendered stuff the way the ASP.NET did it or Rails did it. <coughs> I knew that it was cheaper then. But I felt like it was going to become more and more in demand to have heavy front-end clients, and you know, jQuery, of course, was like, "Hey, let's, uh, we'll give you some tools to do some cool stuff." But Knockout and Backbone were more like, "Hey, here's the tools to write your your whole front end, and all you need to get for the back end is JSON." So I, I I think I was very. uh, aware and almost prophetic and seeing this sort of stuff and saying, you know, this is going to get, the front end is going to get really big and it's going to get very serious. And by 2010, there was, you know, a fair number of front end jobs, um, around, but still I was working with all these. Net guys, And when I quit my job, the job that was doing the CSS, and the reason I would quit is because I wasn't doing enough JavaScript. And I said, I wanted when I came here, what I thought I was going to do is not what I was doing. And I want a job where I was spending at least 70% of my time doing JavaScript. And my boss took me for this walk, and he says, do you even think that there's jobs out there like that? (laughs) And I said, I'm pretty sure there are. And it didn't take me too long. I um, did a little contract for Pluralsight and built their first version of their their video player in HTML5 um but i found this job over at uh, domo doing full time front end javascript nothing else i didn't touch another language for mm, well years really i re- i rarely touch any other language nowadays so it was just all javascript and all front end and it was great it was amazing and i met some amazing people who knew so much and realized how deep the whole the rabbit hole went right mm-hmm. met uh, Merrick christensen who knew javascript you know, so well and taught me tons and tons and tons of stuff. And in return, I taught him to pair program and, and test drive code. So it worked out pretty well. Kent Dodds. A lot of people will know who Kent C Dodds is. Uh, I met him there and taught him to, uh, to test drive code as well. So we had a lot of fun and, uh, Yeah, I think I just knew that it would be an exciting place and and an unknown frontier and a a great place to come and uh, do new things. And there would be a lot of change and a lot of big advancements and a lot of opportunity to be involved in really fixing big problems. Right. And I've definitely found that to be the case. Definitely found that case.
0: It's interesting. You know, you talked about it as kind of this open frontier. And uh, my friend Brandon Hayes gave a talk about the hype cycle for programming and programming languages and frameworks and stuff. And there's a group like you that go in right at the beginning of a technology, and they're kind of the pioneers. And so they go out there in kind of the unspoiled land, and they figure out what it's going to take to to be out there. And, you know, they start setting up the general stores and the forts and all of the things that provide infrastructure for the people who are coming later. And then people come in and actually move in and build up and do all the other things. And I, I feel like that's kind of where JavaScript is now. Um, and then, and then a lot of people will come in after everything is fully established and kind of enjoy the benefits that right. are there. And so it's it's interesting to see that. Yeah, you know, you were one of those people that kind of said, you know what, I'm going to go stake some ground out here and figure out how to do it.
1: Right. And uh, we all know the names of the big pioneers that have done amazing things. Um, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of these guys, maybe not necessarily their names are known, but John Rezig and um, Dan Abramov and people that are uh Y-Cats, right? People that are really doing amazing things. And those names are really well known, but I definitely found that uh, there was a lot to do. Even just, you know, I became an educator at that, about that time and got more and more and more into education. And I found that there was a lot to do just in telling people, you know, helping people learn this stuff, right? And it wasn't, I didn't have to be the guy who invented Redux to feel like I really contributed to the market and contributed to the landscape of where it's at, so you don't have to be, you don't have to look at it and say, boy, Redux has already been invented, there's no reason for me to try to help out. It's it's the exact opposite now. You know, there's so much to do and so many great places to help out with.
0: It's so true, and uh, I encourage anybody so the week before this one comes out, um, I just did an interview with Isaac Schluter, who uh, built NPM, and he maintained Node for a little while after Ryan Dahl left. And, uh, you know, just – just he, he kind of told the story of, of this same kind of moving into this space and solving some of these problems and, and just kind of how it started. And, yeah, like – NPM just started out as a series of scripts that made it easier to modularize your JavaScript. And then they added the registry, and then they bolted on some of these other features. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, now it's this big established thing in the Node and JavaScript communities. And, you know, it just started out as something simple because there really wasn't anything else there. Right. Right. So uh, the next question is, were you... The next question honestly would be, how did you get into Angular? But I'm curious, were you as early an adopter on Angular as you were on JavaScript?
1: Darn close. I think I started using Angular pretty heavily around 2010, 2011. Right, it and was, it was so early. I'd never heard of Angular when I started using it because we were doing this, it was actually this HTML5 video player for Pluralsight, and they were uh, all testing, all pairing, 100% pair program, 100% test-driven code type of place And at the time, the frameworks that are available were Backbone, Ember, and then we discovered Angular. But Backbone, I'd done it before and wasn't really crazy about it. So we looked at Ember, but at the time, nobody knew how to do any testing with Ember. So we quickly abandoned that. But the guy I was working with, Jim Cooper, he had stumbled upon angular and said hey there's this angular tool and front-end framework and it says it supports unit testing which it did it was like you know built in from the ground from the right from the get-go so that was when we started using angular and we were both you know we both quickly fell in love with it and said wow this is so great compared to what we'd had with backbone and knockout right it was just such a huge step
0: forward what, what was it about Angular that made you go, oh, we got to use this, as opposed to, yeah, uh, Knockout or Backbone?
1: Well, obviously, the one criteria was that it was testable. But I think once we started playing around with it and we saw that, oh, my gosh, you can just go into the HTML and put in a few little things. And Backbone kind of had that same concept. You'd go in and kind of write your bindings. But <clears throat> to hook it up was a lot worse, where with Angular, the two-way binding, you just – throw something in HTML and then just have a piece of data in that controller and boom everything was hooked up and working together that was like a big moment for me playing around with that and going oh my gosh this is so easy so quick nowadays we take that sort of stuff for granted right it's like ground zero it's like baseline is can you do that but uh, we at the time it was very novel to have these sort of bindings and not have to go through jump through a bunch of hoops like we did with Knockout to get them to work and have all the other pieces involved oh services to encapsulate your logic and it felt very structured for us so we was it was a huge deal
0: yeah it's kind of interesting because uh when we started adventures in angular you know you and merrick pushed me you you must have asked me like three times before i finally said okay let's do this right uh you know once i got into it and saw some of that it was oh because because i was very comfortable with the back end rendered you know DOM and things like that but yeah just right. just finding that power and going hey look you know I can I can push all the information I need into the front end and then the front end just kind of does its thing and it's it's mostly decoupled from the back end unless I need to store or update something and it works pretty seamlessly and flawlessly and gives me a whole lot more power right
1: and to correct something that you said it was Aaron Frost This we started Adventures in Angular with not Merrick
0: oh okay <clears throat>
1: <laughs> want to get that name right But yeah, it was, it was, it was so not groundbreaking. I don't know. Did you feel the same way when you started getting into Angular?
0: Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, things have been such that I didn't get as deep into Angular 1 as I wanted to. Um, and recently, I decided I'm going to build a uh, single-page app so that I can get more into Angular 2. But at this point, I don't see a lot of value going back to Angular 1 as opposed to just looking forward from Angular 2. So right. I, I don't have that deep expertise, but uh, <clears throat> I did use it on a few projects, not to the extent of actually like setting up a single-page app. Mm-hmm. But you know, I had some web web pages where it was like, you know what? Um, I need when somebody submits a form for it to change, or you know, I I need some some other things on the page to be coordinated with it. And so I did use it for those kinds of things, where I had you know controllers and directives working together in order to manipulate the page. But it was relatively simple stuff um, that just took advantage of the two-way data binding and some eventing in Angular One.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, it was definitely a big deal.
0: So the next question is, what have you done um, within the Angular and JavaScript communities? I think NGConf is the one that stands out to me, but are there other things that you want to talk about here?
1: Yeah, NGConf is probably the most the highest profile thing that I've done, other than maybe these podcasts. Right, getting to be on JavaScript, Jabber and Adventures in Angular have been really big things for me. Uh, I was very close to joining the Angular team. But like many things, it was like being, you know, the runner up for Miss America's not Miss America. <laughs> 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 I was definitely the runner up for Miss America. Right? Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. <clears throat> so yeah. I interviewed twice with the Angular team and thought that I was going to be joining them and helping to build like Angular itself and instead... I went into Pluralsight um, and started doing that heavily, but definitely ngconf is the big thing. Now we got ng-cruise, right? I already got a spin-off of ng and who knows, maybe there'll be more. So getting in the conference scene has been pretty fun. Yeah.
0: Let's go through these kind of chronologically. So I think of the three or four things you've mentioned here, JavaScript Jabber's the earliest. Yep. Um, so yep. I'm curious, because I don't know that we've ever really talked deeply about this, but... What have you liked or not liked? What's your experience been being a member of the JavaScript Jabber panel?
1: Uh, So far, I've liked everything other than being the only panelist that shows up. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that sucks when that happens. I mean, we sometimes we have like these guests on that. You're just like, oh, my gosh, I get to meet and sit and talk with, you know, whoever. Brendan Ike would probably be. The top in my list mm-hmm. of the people that we've had on the show, right? Yeah, the people that I would just, oh my gosh, can I? I'd just love to shake your hand. How how much do I have to pay to get a signed autograph uh, of yours, right? A picture, yeah. and right? That's that's the kind of guy that. That is, and then we've had you know the range down to people that I had no idea who they were, and were very nice, right? So that that part's been very awesome. Is just getting to meet lots of really cool people and hear about lots of really cool pro- products as well. I've really liked that aspect of it, and we've got a lot of great panelists. And we've gone through quite a few panelists in the uh, 200 and some odd episodes we've done. Yep. So I've I've really enjoyed being part of JavaScript Jabber for sure. Something I don't want to give up. I really, really liked it.
0: Yeah, and that, for me, it's a lot of the same, um, you know, getting to meet and see people. Uh, The other thing that I've really enjoyed about JavaScript Jabber and Adventures in Angular in particular, um, Ruby Rogues, I used to get this out of it, but I don't as much anymore. And that's just, I get challenged with a new topic, like a new technology that I don't know or a new reason for doing something a certain way that I had never thought of before. Mm -hmm. Things like that. And so I just like kind of the, the brain tweaking bits of this that it's like, oh, I had never thought of doing something that way.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. A lot of cool ideas, a lot of cool ways to do things, yeah. get exposed to a lot of cool stuff.
0: Yeah. What about Adventures in Angular? Is it kind of the same or is there something different about that? Um, You
1: know, I think in Adventures in Angular, what might be a little bit different for me is I feel like a lot of the audience might know who I am from other work that I've done, even, you know, just even from organizing Ngconf. So on a JavaScript tab, I kind of feel like a nobody. In Adventures in Angular, I don't necessarily I feel like a little bit of a somebody, right? So that might be one of the differences for me when dealing with the two podcasts but other than that the enjoyment is definitely the same right getting to meet cool people and talk about cool stuff obviously the topics are more focused so rarely do we have a topic where i'm not relatively aware of what it is and what's going on and uh there's not tons of new content that comes my way with the javascript jabber like every other episode we do is potentially some new topic and it's oftentimes something i'm You rarely only barely even heard of, let alone have a good concept as to what it does. We certainly have plenty of episodes where I had no idea what something did and had the episode and thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'll have to check that out, you know?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's that's really true. And especially um, I I think it's easier in that way with Adventures in Angular because it's a smaller ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the things that are moving are being driven by the same people. Yeah, And so if you're paying attention to the Angular team and you're paying attention to the Angular conferences and maybe a few other people who are blogging about stuff, you can kind of, you can keep on top of it and you can say, oh, okay, Th- that's, that's where this is coming from.
1: Right, right no I, I definitely agree so it's easier to keep your thumb in, uh, on the pulse of what's going on in Angular with, with JavaScript as a whole right I mean, we could, we could devote the whole podcast just to the back end of JavaScript we could devote yep. the whole podcast obviously like we have to a subset which is like Angular right to get good coverage of there's all the frameworks, there's all the techniques all the tools there's just so much ground to cover and that's, that's what's really enjoyable about JavaScript Jabber Yep.
0: So uh, the next question is, or, or I guess, you know, we, we were into that next question, but uh, ng hmm. So what's the story behind that? I know we talked about this on Adventures in Angular, but do you <laughs> want to kind of recap that a little bit? You're talking
1: about the birth of ng Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that job that I got at Domo doing front end, we would hired on a couple of guys that were uh, – big uh, time engineers at another, actually at the LDS church. And we'd hired them away from the LDS church. They were working for the LDS church. So we hired them. And those, those two guys were Dave Geddes and Aaron Frost. Uh, at the time, it was funny at the time we had a real problem, Domo had a real problem hiring and the CEO, Josh James, who's this, uh, one of the big heroes of the Utah tech scene, because he had a big company launched before, and now he's got Domo, which is just going crazy. That was Omniture, right? Yeah, Omniture. Which yep. was purchased by Adobe. Purchased by Adobe, yeah, for a lot of money. So he, uh, he talked to, I think it was a couple of engineers and said, look, we need to hire people. I guess we're having problems. And he just heard about it in some staff meetings. He says, set up lunches with me and your friends, your best friend, your friends that are the best developers, you know, so um, I can't remember who it was that knew Dave and Aaron, but set up lunches and got Dave and Aaron to come in and Josh James gave him the Josh James uh, sales pitch. And so they came on board. And I think that was what kind of brought Angular to Domo. We were a backbone shop before then. And they brought Angular in and we switched over to Angular. And then at some point, Uh, Along the way, we'd we'd already had uh, Kip um, Lawrence working. He'd been working for Domo for quite a long time, actually before Josh James even got involved and bought it up. But he'd been organizing a little conference here in Utah, the Utah JavaScript conference. And so him and I believe Aaron had this idea to do an Angular conference because nobody was doing anything like that at the time. And I'd been helping out Kip a lot with the JavaScript conference, the Utah JS conference, mm-hmm. and Dave was you know big into Angular as well, so they grabbed me and Dave and said, hey, we've we got this idea to start up a, a new conference, and I said, great, but four guys, is, four is a bad number because there's no tiebreaker, let's bring in a fifth guy. That was the whole reason we brought in the fifth guy. So we brought in Merrick Christensen, and uh, then we said, let's organize a conference. And Utah JS is this little small time thing, like 150 people, right? And it was run at a public library where you you paid two thousand dollars to have it for the day. And we decided, you know, this is Angular could be big. Let's do someplace big. And we looked at a lot of locations and finally settled on the Little America Hotel. So we could have seven we could have up to seven hundred people. And we were hoping for like four hundred, maybe even five hundred, but knew that it would go up to seven would go up to seven hundred. And all of a sudden they're saying, Okay, great. Yeah, if you want to do it, you got this here's this contract for essentially a quarter million dollars. You got a sign, right? <clears throat> and you're on the line for a quarter million dollars. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. That's combined food and uh, hotel nights. And so here we are, four guys that had Barely done anything in this space, signing a quarter million dollar contract, and uh, then the the funny story is that the we we'd announced our tickets and the price that, the pricing was almost like arbitrary, like we threw a dart at a board and said, "Well, let's make the ticket seven hundred dollars, and the early birds will be six hundred dollars." We never did an analysis to see if it was financially viable or not. So we did that, and a few people on the internet, of course complained that it was too expensive naturally everybody on the internet you're gonna no matter what you do the internet will complain about it <clears throat> so a few people complained and a couple of the organizers got really freaked out the day that the tickets were going to go on sale our early bird tickets we we'd allocated i think 100 or 150 early bird tickets The day they were going on sale, two of the organizers were convinced that this was a bad idea, that the ticket price was way too high. We needed lower ticket prices. We need to move away from the Little America, this amazing, beautiful, high-end hotel, and instead go to the Utah State Fairgrounds. They had this essentially a big barn, right? Yep. It wasn't an animal barn, but it was just this big structure building that – was so plain and low rent but it was super cheap and would hold a lot of people they were convinced we needed to do that and i'd been the one dealing with the hotel up to that point i said we can't we can't get out of our contracts we'd have to declare bankruptcy and all this sort of stuff right we can't do it and finally the it was two of us wanted to stick with what we were doing and two of us wanted to last minute change and lower the ticket prices by 100 bucks and so finally, that fifth guy, Merrick Christensen, yet again, came in and said, it's too late to think even think of doing anything else. You just got to stay the course. And this is, this is like at 11.50 a.m. and tickets were going on sale at noon. So 10 minutes before tickets were going to go on sale, the tiebreaker came in and said, no, nope, leave things the same. Noon hit and we went and refreshed the little uh, admin Control panel to see how ticket sales were going as noon hit, and the you know one page refreshed and the tickets were all sold out, 150 of them. Boom, gone. Five seconds, and we were just flabbergasted, of course. And then somebody was like, "I guess we should have raised prices."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, it it ended up going pretty well, and we was kind of stuck trying to stick to that same. Cost structure. We it, we charge about four hundred dollars a day, and that lets us have it at a really nice hotel and have really great food and have money to spend on fun uh, entertainment to go along with the good education. And we can bring in a lot of the best speakers and bring in a lot of scholarships and other people to help out. And boy, it's been it's been awesome. But that was essentially the birth of NG Conf Was this. Hey, we're gonna just do this, and let's just randomly pick some stuff. And because I'd been trying to get hired on with the Angular team, I knew some of them. Aaron Frost, he was a GDG, a Google Developer Group uh, advocate, and so he kind of knew them as well. And had dinner with them and approached them about um, be coming to this conference. And they said, Hey, if you guys go to a conference, yeah, we'll come and speak. And they didn't. i'm sure they didn't think we were serious and all of a sudden there's this ngconf thing and it's just going and it's going crazy and we're selling that tickets you know we put the main portion of the tickets on sale a few weeks later and they sold out in 10 seconds like 400 tickets boom took them 10 seconds later so it has just been a kind cr- of a crazy ride and since then i've done a lot of conferences and none of them have gone like ngconf <laughs> it's been the definitely the easiest and the biggest by far
0: Nice. And uh, yeah, I mean, it it seems to have gotten bigger and bigger every year.
1: Yeah, we we were careful about adding people. We ultimately did double in size and go to 1,400 people. But when we did that, we also added another day so that people would still have more time to be involved and... You know if you're one of 1400 people you probably just feel like a little tiny cog But we want it to feel more intimate so we wanted people to have opportunities to talk with the angular team and to talk with the google developer experts for angular and even organizers right and sponsors we wanted those conversations to be able to happen and the, the main personalities in the industry like john papa dan malin ward bell we wanted people to have those opportunities so we added another day and that extra day was kind of the not a lot of structure. There's education going on all day long, but you can sort of pick and choose. It's not like we're just doing talks all day long. And if you're not sitting here in a seat watching the talks, then you're not benefiting. Right. We want it to be a more form day. And we feel like it's kept it fairly intimate at that point. But we would never I don't think I don't know. I shouldn't say never, but I don't think we would ever grow beyond this mark because we we've already feel like okay this is about as big as we can grow it and still kind of keep the quality high right. and and the opportunities the intimacy where we want them
0: so uh yeah so then we get into the spin-off of ng cruise
1: yeah so that was that was kind of a funny thing because <clears throat> kip lawrence had that idea originally probably almost two years ago uh-huh. right <clears throat> and we talked about doing it on and off, but nothing ever got serious. And then maybe last summer, I kind of got serious and did some preliminary investigation. And then everybody was kind of like, "Well, maybe." So we just sort of bagged the idea. And then Tracy Lee came along and she said, "Hey, I'd really like to do an Angular cruise." And we heard about it, so we started talking to her. And so she kind of, she, we kind of let her lead the the effort. Main mainly, and we sort of help out just as we can. Uh, I I do quite a bit of work with her on NG Cruise, but she kind of is the main driving force behind NG Cruise uh, by in, presented by NG Comp, right? So we yeah, it's it's still an NG Comp spinoff, but uh, Tracy is kind of the lead, and she's been amazing, been great to work with. So it's been pretty funny seeing that whole thing. We tickets have just barely gone on sale, so. Uh, we the CFP is still open. hasn't even. Uh, I think I don't think it's fully closed yet. I think most speakers have been chosen, but there might be one or two still to come. And right now, we're working on what are the fun activities, like shore excursions, we're going to go on, and do some non, some unconference type stuff, open spaces and things. So that's been really fun though to to see that go. And now the NG Conf is sold out. I'm sure we'll start seeing people saying, "All right, well, I'd like to go on the cruise too." It's been an interesting thing trying to do a conference on a cruise, a lot of lot of challenges to it.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Um, I know a few people who have done conferences on cruises and depending on how uh, technical it is and how much people rely on things like internet access and cell phone access and where you're traveling to, yeah. Yeah. It gets interesting pretty fast.
1: Yeah, we're telling all the speakers, do not rely on internet access. Even though there technically will be internet access, don't rely on it. Yeah. Make sure that you can give your talk with no internet access at all. Yes. And to be honest, I mean, I don't know how many conferences you've gone to. We haven't had much in the way of internet, but I've gone to tons. And the, the, the I feel like when I'm an attendee at a conference, if I don't have internet access, that just means I can't check my email. Yeah. But the actual education that's there to be had at a conference is more about watching the talks and taking notes than it is about, you know, again, if you, we've debated this as conference organizers many times of just not having internet access because then people pay more attention for what little tiny bit we would lose of somebody wanting to take notes, you know, online, right. Or, or be able to, Hey, I just saw something. I want to go check it out really quickly online while they're talking. We would gain a bunch of people not checking their email.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Um, I tend at this point to put my laptop away. Um, Yeah. If, if the talk's not interesting enough for, to hold my attention, then I'll just get up and go to a different talk. And if I can't find a talk that I'm that interested in, then I'll go into like some common area and sit down and pull my laptop out and work. But yeah, for the most part, I tend to just put it away because, um, I'm, I'm there to do things that I can't normally do. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. One other thing um, that I'm just going to bring up, I know this isn't a, hey, you're a conference organizer and I have an idea, but, <laughs> but I'll just throw this out there. Um, uh, at MicroConf, they actually have, it's a one-track conference. It's not a multi mm-hmm. track like. Uh, NGConf kind of is and kind of isn't this last time. Right. But uh, they had a designated note taker Oh, really the sessions. Yeah. And so um, I think the last two years has been Kai Davis. Um, but anyway, so he just gets a Google Doc and he takes notes for everybody during the talk. And then the organizers essentially get up and say, um, we have somebody who's going to take excellent notes for you. So hmm. you don't have to put your laptops away and just soak up what we're giving you in the talks. Well, that's awesome.
1: I went to a conference. I think it was Empire JS in New York. Mm -hmm. And they had it where there was a designated area where you were allowed to have your laptops open. It was way in the back. But the majority of the seats, no laptops open. They'd get up at the beginning of every talk and just say, just a reminder, please put your laptops away if you're sitting in the main section. If you need to have your laptop open, go up to the top. The back and and do that there and I really like that, and but yeah the the opportunity to you know not again not every talk is going to be interesting so you can always pull out your laptop and do some work at that time I think the best conference ever is that conference and yes I know it sounds like I'm pointing at something but literally the name is called that conference in Wisconsin at the uh, Kalahari Resort which is a huge indoor water park. So, And there's a, an hour and a half in between, or each talk is spaced an hour and a half apart. So I think it's like a, the talk's an hour long and then the break's a half hour long. So if there's a time frame when you don't have a talk you want to go to, then you can go hit the water park. And an hour and a half is plenty <laughs> of time to change your swimsuit, go hit the water park, want some rides, come back, dry off, be get your regular clothes back on, and be back in your seat for the next session. So I love that that conference and love going to it every year.
0: Yeah. I'll also just tell people that if there's a session that you, you know, you're not interested in or they don't have a session that you're really keen on seeing, um, go to the back of the room, go out to where the exhibitors are and see who's out there um, and just get to meet people. Cause again, right. That's something that you can't do at home that you can do at the conference. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, Let's go ahead and move into the last question, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm just finishing up.
1: I've like literally just submitted it to be published. My Angular 2 Fundamentals course, I think I mentioned it already, it's nine hours and some odd, uh, almost 10 hours long, right, and covers Angular 2 Really in in depth from a beginner standpoint, really gives you a good over, overview and coverage of Angular two. You don't have to be an Angular one developer have any Angular, any Angular one experience to uh, be able to take the course. So that's probably my my big thing, and then I'll I'll work on some other Angular courses right after, as soon as right now I'm starting the Angular two migration course to migrate from Angular one to Angular two. Of course, I, I call it Angular two, but really the official name is just Angular. Mm-hmm. And because uh, version four is going to be out here soon of Angular. So anyway, migrating from Angular one to Angular, I guess, would be the name of that. But <laughs> 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 yeah, let's not talk about the naming fiasco and just just roll with it. Right. But um, so Pluralsight courses are definitely the big thing that I've got going on right now. Obviously, until April, that'll be, NG, you know, ngconf. And we've got a lot of prep work. Uh, involved in that, and I may be I may be showing up at NG Vikings in Denmark in February. Cool, so that could be cool. Yep, love Denmark and love the organizers of that conference. There are a lot of good people, so I'm working with them, trying to see if I can make it out there. But yeah, plural site courses. I think now that Angular 2's hit release, I, I spent a long time building that Angular Two fundamentals course. And once that's out, I want to drop a few more Angular Two courses out there, get some other good. Um, learning out there for people to benefit from. So those are my big projects right now.
0: Awesome. So the last question is, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. Uh, I want to pick
1: Costa Vida. I just went to Costa Vida. It's, I think it's a local Utah company. It's Mexican food is like fresh max. It's a little bit like, um, uh, oh, what's that Cafe burrito Rio. place? I don't, well, Cafe Rio, but they're only slightly bigger, right? Yeah. There's What's the other fresh mix? Chipotle. There you go. It's just like it's a lot like Chipotle, but I think it's better. So I want to pick Cafe Rio for good food.
0: Cafe Rio, and, or Costa Vita.
1: Oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Costa Vita. I do like Cafe Rio too, but I like Costa Vita just a little bit better. Their sweet pork quesadilla is to die for—the sweetest pork you've ever had. So if you're ever passing through Utah, I think there's probably a few in some neighboring states. Try to make some time and. You know, even, uh, there's a lot on the freeway, stop in, have a little Costa Vida. So that'll be my pick for today.
0: I always get the sweet pork salad. Oh yeah. Yep. And yeah. I like that. yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at their, uh, location map. Uh, it looks like they have one in Chicago and one in Kansas city. Oh, wow. But most of them are in the West, California. There are a ton of them in Utah and Idaho. Um, but they have a couple in Washington, uh, a couple in Nevada, A handful in Arizona, one in New Mexico, and a bunch in Colorado. So, yeah, check them out. Oh, they have a few in Dallas, too.
1: Cool. Yeah, and definitely, uh, my other, I should also pick NG Cruise, right? It's going to be awesome. Much more intimate environment than NG comps. So if you're looking to just hang out with just a couple of hundred other Angular developers and really get to have good quality time and uh, really make some awesome connections with the people whose names you know and who you follow on Twitter, then come to NG Cruise. It's going to be it's going to be great. Really, really excited
0: about that. Very cool. Well, um, I've got a pick or two myself. So um, when I talked to Isaac, I picked CES 2017. I'm going to be going down to Las Vegas uh, the first weekend in January for CES, uh, mm. looking at all the cool gadgets and stuff and trying to figure out what you can code and what you can code it with, you know, because they all have developer development kits and uh, APIs that you can hit. Right. Um, but when I booked. When I when I decided to go down, I booked my stay using Airbnb, and the reason is is because is that as soon as CES uh, announces its dates, the cost on the hotel rooms goes up about four x. Um, so so the hotel rooms go from fifty bucks wow. a night or hundred bucks a night to two hundred and fifty bucks a night to four hundred bucks a night. And when I went last year, I kind of went um, uh, spur of the moment because I was going down for a few other things and. I think the first night um, I stayed down there, I found a room for two hundred dollars for that night. And the second night I was there, um, we we couldn't find anything. We wound up staying out in Mesquite. So wow, it fills the whole town. Um, so I booked early on Airbnb, and of course the the dirty rotten person who I booked with, I think they figured out that it was CES and that they could charge about four times what they had charged me. Cause I booked it in August. So <laughs> I had to go book another stay and, uh, I still got a decent deal. It was hundred dollars a night, but, um, yeah, I just, I really like it for just the, the ability to go down. I get an entire place to myself. Um, I can just pick up some breakfast cereal or whatever I decide I want to have for breakfast and just, you know, just stay there. And then when I'm done leave and, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit quieter, a little more uh, relaxing for me than staying in a hotel. So I'm going to pick that. When I do stay in a hotel, I have a Hilton Honors membership, and I'll mention that as well. Um, if you travel much, then having those frequent user, frequent flyer, frequent, you know, whatever uh, deals is a is a terrific deal. So I think I've earned uh, free nights at, at Hilton after going to New York because we stayed in the Hilton Garden in there. Um, Nice, and uh, I just achieved silver medallion status on Delta uh, on my trip to um, to New York City as well. And so, yeah, whenever I fly now, um, it's only the gold and diamond medallion people that have priority over me for a free upgrade to first class if a seat opens up. Um, wow! And then you can also go use the the sky lounge or whatever they call it. And so. You know, just just having those frequent flyer things is real nice. Um, Another nice side effect of that was uh, about three years ago, my wife had a cousin die out in Missouri and we really weren't in a financial position to pay for airline tickets but I had those miles. And so I was able to send her and her sister and the Mm. whole trip cost them $30 to fly out there because we used the miles they just had to pay the fee. So anyway, um, yeah, if you travel often, those are all great options for you. And since we talked about conferences, you know, you can check that out. Sometimes it's a better deal than the hotel. Right. Well, Joe, if people want to follow you, check out what you're doing these days, anything like that, what's the best place for them to go to figure that out?
1: By far Twitter, I do have a personal blog site, but I don't really blog a ton, so I'm fairly active on Twitter, so you can find me at uh, twitter.com slash J-O-S-E-P-H-E-A-M-E-S. just got to verify. I forget. Yeah, J- Joseph Eames, E-A-M-E-S. So you can find me there. That's where I hang out uh, most of the time. I like to keep in touch with uh, people over Twitter. So that's the best place by far.
0: Very cool. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. And thanks for coming again, Joe. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.